Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. I think we are all aware by now, if we should all be aware, of the challenges we face in Canada as it pertains to immigration. We, when we have people come in, and I think most of us are in favor of having immigration. I don't know anyone who's totally against immigration. We have different thoughts on it. But when we invite people into the country, when we allow people in, we have to find housing and jobs for newcomers. We have to screen for security reasons. All that stuff is important. We somehow have to assimilate these new Canadians into our society and give them a chance. The difference is from what we see in south of the border, though, as it comes to immigration, is we as Canadians generally, we like to think of ourselves as choosing not to be a melting pot. The Americans, when you come to the States, at least traditionally, you have come to the States, you've become an American. In Canada, we celebrate diversity more than that. You come to Canada, we like to boast about our willingness to allow you to come here and retain your culture. You bring part of where you are from and you bring it in to this country and add it to the picture of what is here. But a new survey out shows how tricky that can be at times because as Canada is becoming more and more secular, we are telling people to keep their religion out of the public square, keep it out of politics, keep it out of here, keep it out of there, just keep it to yourself. A new poll by Angus Reid and Cardis says immigrants often, many times, feel very strongly that religion should be a part of the public discussion. So we're inviting them to come here. We want them to bring their background, but then we tell them seemingly, well, what do we tell them? 58% of third generation Canadians believe religion should have not much or no influence in public life, according to this survey. Yet 64% of immigrants believe it should have influence or major influence in public life. And we're talking about all religions here, just in case you're wondering, all the people coming into this country. So how do we square this? How do we tell people to be who they are and then equally tell them, yeah, but that being who you are is not really the Canadian way. We don't do that here. Daniel Pennings is executive vice president of CARDIS. Uh, again, one of the groups that was part of this poll. Uh, Ray, pardon me, Ray. Uh, how are you tonight? Thanks for doing this. I'm very well, Scott. Thanks for having me. Uh, thank, sorry for the name screw up there. I wrote down two names at the same time, and uh, you became Daniel for a moment. But it is rape. Uh, this, these numbers, do they surprise you at all when you look at this? Not really. Um, last year, Cardis and Angus Reid partnered at the occasion of Canada's 150th. So take a look at the role of faith groups in um, in Canada. And what was surprising was the disconnect between the actual work that faith groups were doing and the public perception. So when you actually took a look at um, people's experience of care for the refugee, health care, social services, it, it's very clear that religious groups play a very significant role. And yet the public perception is that it's marginal and should be on the outside of the public life. So it's not surprising that when you do a poll as we just did this time to dig deeper and to ask an oversampling of immigrants themselves, um, differentiating between first, second, and third generation, but your own experience, have you been helped? Uh, You know, 50% of those who've come to this country actually receive material aid from a religious community, not necessarily the one they belong to. But, um, and I think we, many people recognize, we brought in many Syrian refugees last year. Um, a good proportion of them were sponsored by faith groups of various sorts. And the evidence is pretty clear that those groups are, are um, 
becoming self-sufficient and more participatory in public life and um, in Canada faster than those who do not receive that sort of support. So it's not surprising they would think very positively of the role of faith communities. So, Ray, if that's the case, if in fact the people who are coming here are getting a hand up, are getting a help from different faith groups, whether they're Christian or Muslim or Jewish or whatever, how is that message seemingly being lost? Because we're not hearing that message. And it's not just immigration. Uh, you know, it, it's health care. It's, uh, it's all of these different uh, streets. I think there is a public narrative out there that religion involves um, private belief, private worship, um, you know, funny hats, funny foods. Uh, we, we have the stereotype of religion in terms of what it is. And yet, in almost all the faith traditions, and in Canada, obviously the largest historical one is the Christian tradition with its many denominations, but faith never just involves a personal relationship to God. It's love God and love your neighbor. And so it comes out to expression in so many ways in everyday life. Um, but I think we have, for a large part, an amnesia. Uh, we have a generation of um, Canadians, and you know they'd be captured by the third-generation immigrants here, who were raised without active participation in religious communities as previous generations. So there's an amnesia and a forgetfulness. So we forget the fact that St. Joseph's Hospital in Hamilton, one of the largest hospitals, actually, you know, was founded by uh, a Roman Catholic, um, or, uh, is of Roman Catholic origins, and significant funding throughout the years has been there. Many of our retirement homes, many of our homes come out of those communities. Uh, we, have, we, we see those signs, and we have forgotten what that actually means in real life. And I think there is also something of an antagonism. Uh, there's amnesia, forgetfulness, but there is also some antagonism. And we're seeing that in various uh, programs, like, you know, the Canada Summer Jobs attestation, court decisions. There are various things that seem to be intentionally driving religion to the margins of public life. Well, and if, okay, so if immigrants uh, have strong religious views, and that's the, what's what we're seeing, we're seeing that many of them through this survey come here with them, but by the time you get into second or third generation of immigrants, that those numbers drop significantly, is the message then that the Canadian way is to dump your religion? Well, there all religions have had challenges at various times in terms of keeping youth, in terms of next generation and adapting with the times. Now, when we do remember, when we're talking second, third generation, we're talking 50 years after arrival along the way. We're talking about a third of our history. So there are significant factors that are happening, um, and it's not just, um, it, it, it doesn't just uh, apply to your family roots, your ethnic roots, or your religious roots. You're, there are broader cultural tents. Culture itself has changed rather substantially in the last 50 years. So, but, but to, to be sure, um, immigrant communities, um, as, as you come into a culture in which the message is very strongly that religion is private and personal and has nothing to do with public life, and as that is emphasized, it is having an impact. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Chatting with Ray Pennings, the executive vice president of Cardus, which has teamed with Angus Reid to do a new poll, new survey on immigrants and religious beliefs. Many immigrants, a high number of immigrants come here believing that there should be a role for a religion in public life. And yet the flip side is that most Canadians, by the time we get to second or third generation Canadian, believe that 
religion should kind of be a private thing. It doesn't really have a role in private life or in public life. And we've seen, as Ray said just before the break, we've seen some examples even recently. We've seen a Supreme Court case about Trinity Western University. We've seen the federal liberals with the summer jobs attestation, things that would seem to follow that and say, you know what? No, religion, religion is fine. Keep it to yourself, but you're allowed to have it. But Ray, here's the conundrum that I think many people are going to have with this. We, we say repeatedly we want immigrants to come to this country. We want them, as I said off the top, to bring a bit of their culture. We want them not to feel welcome here like they are entitled to be full Canadians and bring their diversity. But when they re- mention religion, we then say to them, oh, but not that part. We, keep that part back home, but bring the rest of you here. And the interesting thing is many people come to this country from places in the world where the respect for democratic values and human rights are not what they are in Canada. And it's ironic. One of the questions we asked in the poll is, um, you know, agreement with various statements. And one of them is, does having a religious or faith-based upbringing help shape good citizenship characteristics? Um, What's interesting is that even third-generation Canadians, 60% of them agree. 72% of immigrants agreed. Um, but right across the board, Canadians themselves, even while we're saying religion should be on the margins, when you ask and say, okay, well, we're, you know, if, if there is no such thing as good or evil, what basis do we have to say that racism is bad? And they say, no, 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 we need some set of morals or values in a democratic society to have respect, to have civility. Most people respect that those values have to come from somewhere. And in many ways, most religions along the way are seen as as sources of the creating of virtue in society that we rely on. Well, at the flip side, though, and you you would understand this, I'm sure, Ray, that you would have people who would say, yeah, okay. But 9-11 was, a, was caused by religion or was, was prompted by a religious belief and other bad things that have happened. We hear it all the time. That the biggest cause of strife in the world, we hear, is because of religion. People come here with their extremist views, want to impose religion, and therefore, when, yeah, sure, they want to see it in public life, but it's only going to cause more harm. Well, and abs- absolutely, it's a, it's a it's a mixed bag, and there is good and um, bad in, in the context of religion, as there is in secularism. Um, there is, you know, what one can take a look at history and see that some of the uh, greatest atrocities in the world took place in the name of irreligion and putting religion out. There is no simple formula to say this is automatically good and all religion is good. The interesting thing of religion, very few people see themselves as religion. They see themselves as as Christian or Muslim or Jewish or Sikh. They don't check the religious boxes, and there are significant differences between them. But when you take the aggregate, when you take the whole, what you will find is that most of uh, that, that religious communities have some form generally of love to God that finds expression in love and care for neighbors. And even equality, human rights, respect, all the virtues that are at the essence of democracy, they don't come out of a vacuum. They come from somewhere. And it's, it's interesting when we think of, of, of the, the building of civilization, we can busy, be busy knocking down the pillars one by one and saying religion's no good and this is no good and that's no good. At some point, when you knock down all of the pillars, the roof falls on you. 
there are going to be people listening to this as well, I'm sure, who are saying, look, I don't have a problem if you want to come in and bring your religious belief that would be against capital punishment, because I'm against capital punishment. Therefore, if you want to bring that in and you want to apply that, that's fine. But the flip side, don't bring your religious belief that wants to apply Sharia law to the rest of society. So how do you find the balance? How do you decide which religious views we want to have in our country, in the public sphere? And, and we are a liberal democratic society. And obviously, when you come in the context of a Canadian society, there are certain, you know, we're, we're, we're a society that's, that's built on a respect for the dignity of every human person. That's embedded in our Constitution. That's the basis of our democracy. It doesn't matter on the color of the skin. It doesn't matter on your class. There are other societies in the world that have other driving principles. So, you know, some cultures are based on shame and status. We're not that. And we have to be robust as a society if we're going to maintain the democratic values of, of talking about those things. But the way to do that is not to say, well, some because some people have perspectives, whether religious or otherwise, that contradict it. Therefore, don't talk about that at all, because what we do is we suppress it. And the result is that we see many people without value and some you know we're creating as many uh well not as many but we are creating uh western young young men who are going to fight fight for isis not because they're immigrants these are homegrown canadians so that pro- those problems are not going to go away by not talking about or suppressing religion in fact i'd argue the exact opposite we need a robust discussion about it Ray Pennings, Executive Vice President of Cardus. Again, you can find it online. It was a survey that's been done by Angus Reid and Cardus about immigration, religion, and religion in the public sphere. It's a very interesting discussion. Ray, thanks for doing this today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Don't know if Mick Jagger and Keith Richards and the boys took the Hamilton Citizen Survey, if that's why they're singing about can't get no satisfaction. If that's the case... It'd probably be a bit of an anomaly because this thing is done, I don't know if it's done every year. It certainly was done this year. It's the 2018 Our Citizen Survey is what it's called. It was released today at a council meeting. Actually, I believe it was a planning. It wasn't a full council meeting. Anyway, it is a look at, by talking to people, it is a look at what people like, what people don't like, what people are happy with, what people are unhappy with about the city of Hamilton. Now, here's the thing. We're going to get through some of these things. We're going to talk about some of the things. And one in particular, but you know, people take shots at the city. People joke about the city. People poke jabs at the city every once in a while. But by and large, when you look at this poll, people in Hamilton are generally pretty darn happy with the city, which is a good thing. I mean, we don't want everybody living here being bent out of shape that they're stuck living in Hamilton. That is not the case at all. The numbers of people, it's well in, it's, I mean, it's in the close to 75% above that who are happy or really happy, think that Hamilton is a great place to live, a great place. What's that, the line they have? A great place to live, work, and raise a family, I think is the live age and whatever it is, whatever our new motto is. We got rid of the ambitious city and came up with this one. Um, but by and large, people are generally pretty pleased with the way Hamilton is going. They're pretty happy with most facets of the city of Hamilton. And, and that's, that's terrific. Now, a couple little caveats before we get into some of the specific things here. The first one is that the people who were doing this polling 
according to the numbers that they, they report at the end of it when they're giving their breakdown of how this thing works. They did this two different ways. You could do this online. You could you could do it as an online poll, or you could re, you would get a phone call, and if you picked up your phone and were willing to do the survey, you could do it that way. They made, according to this, 20,284 calls. It's a lot of calls to try and get people to participate in their survey. Over 20,000 phone calls. Guess how many people were willing to take the poll on, on the phone? 550 responses is what they got. I don't have the math in front of me. That is a low number. That is a low number for people who are willing to do this. 20,284, 550 responses. So it comes with us, I guess, with a small grain of salt. And then the online is something like 1,300 people took it online. What do we take from that? Well, I don't know. Do you say that people who did the phone response are older? The people who did the online are younger? There are some answers within this survey that might suggest that, but nonetheless, we don't know exactly. Anyway, here we go. Here's the good news. All right. Again, people are pretty darn happy with a lot of different things in the city. We love our libraries and our bookmobiles. I didn't even know people still use the bookmobile all that much, but we do, apparently. We love our libraries and our bookmobiles. We love our fire department. Fire department got 97%, either good, very good, or excellent. Same with paramedics was up in the high 80s, 88. Police was in the 82. Now, this I find kind of interesting because if you're using the fire department, you probably either have a health issue, probably same with paramedics, probably same with police. If you're using one of them, you have an issue. And as long as you're alive and you survive, you're probably pretty happy with the fact that they came and rescued you. So you're going to get high grades, but good for them nonetheless. I, and I don't know how many people who haven't had the fire department come to their house would have voted on this. And how do you vote against the fire department if you haven't? You know, they're there. They drive nice, shiny trucks. They all look sharp. Anyway, um, fire, but libraries also very high, 91% across the city were happy with the library and bookmobiles. Parks got very high ratings. We were big on recreation. All these things are into the high to mid 80% of good, very good, or excellent. Uh, parks and open space, recreation, cemeteries, not something I would have thought to vote on, but okay, cemeteries got 83% across the city. People said, yep, they're great. Police, 82. Drinking water, 80. Waste management. Now, this, of course, would have been taken before the recent stink bomb issue, I'm guessing, downtown or down in the lower city, but now 80% said waste management is great. 79% said animal services were doing a bang up job. Culture got high grades in the city. All right. So we've got a lot of good things in here. Public health, emergency management, wastewater management, all that, that's the cutoff line now of 75% or higher. All those things, people said, great job, Hamilton. Excellent work, Hamilton. Those things are all really, really good. And honestly, that list is, those are the kind of things I would expect. Those are things you want to see at the top of your list of being really good. Emergency services, drinking water, culture, recreation. Those are things that you definitely want good grades for in a city. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. And as we said before the break, there were a lot of things that were really good. There were a lot of parts about this that got great grades from fire department to policing, to libraries, to cemeteries, to recreation, a lot of thumbs up from a lot of people about a lot of things in this town. And that's fantastic. And overall people point to the fact that they really think Hamilton is a great place to live. Terrific. That's what we want. However, however, 
There is one thing that was on this survey that was so far behind everything else that you, you go down and, you know, as we're going through things, 65% of these are th- people in favor, 65, 65, 61, 60, 60, 56, 54, 54% approval thinking something was good, very good, or excellent. That was the lowest, second lowest, pardon me. That was the second lowest, 54%. That was traffic flow and roadway safety. Then last place goes from those little grade differences to 34%. It plummets. It drops off the face of the earth. And what was the one thing that everybody, whether they were questioned by phone or online, whether they were young or old, upper city, lower city, what was the one thing that everybody seemingly in this city has a problem with? The answer, roads and sidewalks. Roads and sidewalks are universally almost seen as a disaster. This is, a, this is not even close. Everything else was incrementally behind everything else. Public health was 79% positive. Emergency was 77. Waste manager was 75. You see what I'm doing? We're going down by a percentage or two. You get to number two from the bottom, 54. Roads go to 34%. It is the bottom dropping out. Roads are seen by people in this city as a mess. And so what are we doing about it? What is city council doing about it? I give city council tons of credit for the things at the top of this list. The city and city council, you know, when you, when you have 97% approval rating on things, 91%, they get credit for that. They absolutely get credit for that. No one will deny that. No one's going to say city council and the city are making a mess of everything. But the roads are at 34%. And just in case you're wondering... Of this poll, whether it's young or old, online re- uh, recording or by phone, upper city, lower city, 55% of people say they drive to work and 70 to 75% do their chores or drive around to do their stuff. They drive to there. This is a city that drives and everybody or at least two thirds almost of people are saying the roads are are a disaster. A huge chunk of the public is saying, we've got to fix the roads. We've got to fix the roads. We've got to do something about the roads. What does that mean we should be doing? I look at this and I think the fact that it's not a small percentage, it's a huge block of the voters are pointing to the roads, says clearly there is something missing here. Clearly, the city council and city hall is doing well at a lot of things, but somehow the ball is being dropped on roads. And then further, when they asked in this, in this poll, when they asked people, they gave them an open forum. They said, is there anything you would like to tell us about that you have concerns about? And it was wide open. You could say anything. Guess what number one on the list was? The need for repairs, fixes, and improvements to roads. Number one, oh, by the way, number two was traffic flow and road safety. Roads are the clearly number one thing that people say is problematic with this city right now. So what does this do? And I'm not going to get into the whole debate. We can have this debate. I think if nothing else, this should raise the topic for the debate. I think this should be something that is factored in. We have a promise, whether you believe it or not, and that is entirely your choice. That I'm not telling you what to believe or not on this one, but there is a promise from our new provincial government that Hamilton could have a billion dollars 
for infrastructure, whether it's transit or whatever else. I got to believe that when you see this many people saying the roads are a disaster, I drive my car to work, I drive my car to school, I drive my car to do errands, and the number one thing that is missing in this city is good roads. If you believe that Doug Ford is good to his word, that instead of LRT, you could have a billion dollars towards infrastructure, if you're running for council... I got to think that is somewhere in the back of your mind. Is what could a billion dollars? Now let's say you take out 300 million for transit. What could 700 million dollars do for roads in this city? Now, if you don't like that, if you say no, we need the LRT, okay? Then what are we going to get rid of to do something about the roads? Because it is very clear that the people being talked to, the people responding to surveys are saying our roads need work. Our roads need something done about them. So if you are saying, no, we need the LRT, fine. That is fine. I've always said, I'm not going to preach to you about where you should fall on the LRT debate. That is up to you to decide. But I think we should think through this. And if we say, if we are having the overwhelm, by the way, 60% of people say the, the HSR is just fine. 60% are fine with the HSR. That's almost double the number who say the roads are good. Somehow we have to find some money to fix roads. Somehow, everyone is saying this. Where's that money coming from? Where's that money coming from? Kudos to the city and to City Hall for all the other things they do well. Where's the money coming from for roads? We can't continue to let this thing slip and slide and get worse and worse and worse. It's already at a point where people are pointing to this as the number one problem in this city. Where are we getting the money? And if you believe Doug Ford, if you could get $700 million dollars, let's say, because I'm coming up with a round number here, because you could put money towards transit. Could you do this for roads? It's a discussion I think we have to have, isn't it? We have to have this discussion. And then if we decide to do LRT, fine, but we got to have the discussion. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring in our good friend Don Robertson, owner-operator of the Dundas Real McCoys of ComChoice Realty of... Who knows how many other things in Dundas. He joins us every Monday at this time, sir. Thanks for doing this. Glad to be here. Starting with what happened last Friday, and I know you're a golfer of some renown, and by renown, I mean... Brutal. That's what I was going to say, but I let you fill the answer. I've seen seen you golf. Yes, we both are. I've seen you golf. I I am the pot calling the kettle black, let me assure you. (laughs) My, um, my uh, My son works at a golf course the other day. Someone knew me and knew him and said, by the way, is your dad a good golfer? And he said something to the effect of, yeah, he shoots about an 80. The guy goes, really? He goes, yeah, over four holes. <laughs> and he's not wrong. He is not wrong. My um, my best moment, Don, in golf was uh, at a tournament one time. It was, uh, I was playing with a media guy for a local team. And he was about 90 degrees to my right and probably 20 feet away. And I tried to hit a flop shot over a bunch of trees. And so I tilted my club way back. And tried to get right under it and hit it straight up in the air. And I somehow sculled it. So I hit the ball with the bottom face of the club. And I almost put it right into his eye socket at a 90 degree angle. I all, I, I thought, and, and now my knees are shaking and his knees are shaking. And I thought I could have killed him. And I thought, you know, after that, I'm just, it's just not safe for me to play this game anymore. It, I always marvel at uh, stories like that for, you know, a golfer of your, um, uh, caliber cap- yes. capabilities that you sometimes, I mean, if you're so good, how did you get behind the tree? 
And how do you miraculously think you can make a shot that maybe five guys in the world can make to correct the problem? It's always fun to watch. It's a very good point. It's a very good right. point because you, you see them do it. If you've ever gone to the and I know you have, if you've ever gone to the Canadian Open or gone to a PGA event and you watch the guys play, you leave the course saying, this game is easy. And then you go to the course and you try some of the moves that they do and you realize that's why they're there and I'm not. Well, that's why when they're done around, they go to the uh, driving range and if they had trouble in the sand, they'll hit 250 balls yep. out of the sand. No, I've never, I have never hit 250 balls out of a practice sand trap in my life, which speaks to the fact that I can't get out of the sand anyway. Well, I, I was but say, there's no expectation I can. I've hit 250 balls out of the sand, but they were all during a round and they yeah. were on two holes. <laughs> the other, yeah. would you take it out, sir? The the sand trap's almost empty. <laughs> That's right. The other, my other favorite golf story, which. Um, I don't know what this speaks to. Uh, at, at a Canadian Open, they had a media day at Hamilton Golf and Country Club. And I was with three executives, I guess. They were sponsors and after this. So some media people and some people who had helped sponsor the event. So Pres- a big treat for them. Oh, yeah. Presidents of companies or whatever yeah. that had sponsored. And I said to them at the start, I said, just so you know, I, I am a truly atrocious golfer. Like, I'm really bad at golf. So if at any point today my badness begins to affect your enjoyment of this. Just tell me no hard feelings. I'll pick up the ball. I'll drive the cart. I'll just watch. It's totally fine. You've put a lot into this. I don't want to ruin this. And they were like, oh, fine. That's very nice. You thank you. Thank And it was a scramble. And anyone who can picture Hamilton Golf and Country Club knows hole number two goes along the back in front of a bunch of houses, a long par four. And from the tip, because they put the tee box way into the back, I've just told them what a horrible golfer I am. I get up on the tee box and I hit on the best drive of my entire life. It was as straight as could be. It didn't bend at all. Probably went 280 or 290 yards down the middle. I mean, I killed it. And I walk up to my second shot. I take my iron out and I hit the best iron shot of my life. And I drop it about a foot from the cup. And I tap in for a birdie and they're like, oh, sure, he stinks. Only two good shots I had all day. <laughs> the fact that I hit him first two and I hit him in succession was delightful. I'll never do that again in the rest of my life. But anyway. But we're talking golf because on Friday it was announced that they're talking about putting together a challenge match with Phil Mickelson and Tiger Woods for $10 million with the two of them mic'd up to play around for television. Would you watch that? Yeah, I probably would. That would interest you? Yeah, I think so. Over a lot of other things, yeah. I like watching golf on on television. It, you, you'll need a couple um, uh, of uh, good commentators. Well, you would Because there's going to be a lot of time, right? Like when I you guess. watch golf now, you can see you shoot. Well, you probably watch you shoot two or three times and go to somebody else, watch somebody else shoot. But there's going to be delays. These guys are going to hit the ball 300 yards. they got to get to it. And anyway, they'll probably throw them in carts, speed it up a bit. But I'd watch it. I probably would watch. I'm not going to say I wouldn't watch. I'm, I'm sure I would. I would probably have been way more interested 10 years ago, eight years ago, but apparently they hated each other back then. So the story goes, I don't know if they still, I don't know if that was true or if it was just, you know, good for the, good for the rivalry. Well, they like each other now because neither one of them can win. Well, yeah. So they're going to dine out in their popularity. Neither of which need 5 million each or 10 million. 10 million. Yeah. No, I mean, 
them getting a $10 million payday seems somewhat unnecessary. I would much rather have it as a 10 million bucks with at least five going to a charity or something, but you know, whatever, it's not my money. It's their money. They, if they're going to play this, they get to do it. But no, I just, I, I, my big thought on this one, when I was, when I was hearing about it is, is this really good for golf? That the two guys who, as you say, who can't win are your two biggest draws on the tour. Two guys who are past their prime now, Mickelson, I suppose, I mean, either one, I suppose, if they put together four good days, they're still somewhat capable. But the, the the likelihood of either of them winning anything big at this point is small. Is it good for golf that you're putting all your focus on two guys who are now over the hill and almost on the seniors tour and your young stud star players, you're saying, ah, you guys just go play in the greater Pukaluka Open. The only other guy that you could add add into that mix to to um, to make your story your line of thinking even uh, more obvious is John Daly. Uh, yeah, I thought that was the name you were going to come up with. I was thinking, who's he going to say? Rory McIlroy? No, no, Rory McIlroy. No, John Daly. John I mean, Daly. You're talking about popularity. So, first of all, whoever's doing it isn't doing it in the best interest of golf. Like whatever, whatever CBS. This is not or, a PGA Tour sanctioned no, event. No, if it's CBS or whoever's doing it. They're doing it to generate ratings and make a boatload of money, right? I mean, they're not, this isn't a charity event. I mean, they're going to try and make some dough. You know they've got enough sponsors lined up that they're going to hit it out of the park financially. So, I mean, don't think that they're trying to do anything for the game of golf. No, but I wonder if the PGA Tour or anyone from the PGA Tour comes forward and says, Tiger, Phil, guys, like, I understand, but think about this because you're killing us. If you, I mean, and, and I don't think you could. How can you tell these two guys, don't enhance your popularity? Well, I, you, there's no way you could possibly do that, but that's what they got to be thinking. I know what my answer is. We'll give us $10 million each exactly. and we're out. Yeah, exactly. And, but you have to be more than you 10. You think Nike don't want it with Tiger oh, walking that's around? that's what I'm saying. That's... You have to be more than 10 because this is worth more than just the prize money. Oh. This is worth more than, I mean, as you say, Nike with selling shoes or golf clubs or Titleist or Ping or whoever Phil they use. sponsors are going to look at all the face all, yeah. It is, um, I, I think it's, I frankly think it's terrible for the PGA Tour. Again, they don't care. But they don't care. And yeah. CBS, whoever's doing it, they don't care. Is it good for golf in general? I mean, forget the PGA Tour. Maybe it's hard to separate the PGA Tour from the sport of golf because the two are intertwined so heavily, but... Is it good for golf to have this much interest in these two guys, or is it just good for these two guys? It's not unprecedented. I played at a golf course in Palm Desert uh, called Big Bear, and there's 18, 36 holes there, and I asked the, the caddy who you had to have, how many people play here a day? He says, oh, they'll be anywhere from 26 to 40. I said, on this 18, he said, no, on all 36. So when we were done, he took us over, and that's where, um, I think it was couples, Mickelson, Tiger, and Annika Sorenston all played that night game Oh yeah, on NBC like Under the lights, 20 yep. years ago. So it's not unprecedented that they... But the difference was, that time, Annika Sorenstam was by far the biggest women's star. She was competing with the guys. Yep. Tiger Woods was at his apex and was the arguably at that moment, the biggest athletic star in the world. Uh, Mickelson was still very much a young man and in direct competition. Uh, it's 
I, w- I went to a, a, a sparring match and, and part of the training for Trevor Burbick in the Bahamas when he fought Muhammad Ali when Muhammad Ali was, I think, 64 at the time. Mm-hmm. And already slurring. Right. These guys, I mean, they, they the last paydays are, are good things to have. Well, okay, uh, yes, although neither Phil Mickelson nor Tiger Woods needs a payday. Neither, I mean, I, neither I, did Muhammad Ali. No, no. Well, may, I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Yeah, maybe not. Um, and I'm not. I'm not arguing again that. I mean, it's their money, and he's entitled to make his money. I'm just saying, Tiger Woods is worth probably over a billion dollars by now. Ten million in the grand scheme of things isn't all that much to Tiger Woods. No, but gaining some credibility and giving Nike some time with his sponsors oh, and everything else, the whole package, right? I'll tell you who's going to judge this. We'll know two days afterwards when you look at the ratings. And if the ratings outscore the Sunday, the, the you know the the Sunday before in a PGA Tour, that'll answer your question. And again, I go back to my point, which isn't going to stop anyone. But if, and I mean, this to me would be very interesting because this is the one I could think of. If Larry Bird's back wasn't completely gacked up, if Larry Bird and Magic Johnson and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and James Worthy and Robert Parrish and all these guys, if the 1980s NBA superstars decided to play a seniors game and try, would that outdraw the current NBA game that was on that day? And if it did, would the NBA be excited about the fact that the greats of the game are outdrawing their current stars? Well, I don't think it's... Uh, or if Gretzky came back with the old Oilers and actually tried. That's the thing, because they've had those senior, those old-timers games, and they skate around like they're statues. They're, not, they're clearly not making any effort. If you actually tried, I think that would be fascinating, and people would tune into that, and a lot of people would tune into that before they'd tune into a real game. If they tried. That's what I mean. Um, I'd love to see what Wayne Gretzky could do if he went back on the ice today and actually tried. And even if he was awful with the old, I'm not talking about with the young guys. I'm talking with his. Yeah, but he's almost sixty. Uh, well, that's fine. I but I'm again. Yeah. I'm saying I would love with his age group guys to see if they actually went out there and gave it some effort. What they could still look like. So to to address your um, Magic Johnson and and uh, Larry Bird comment, I think it probably probably would outdraw almost all NBA games. But I think it would be uh, not because people were watch want to watch them fail. They just want to watch as a bit of a tribute to yeah. them. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, no. And and so now the, the issue becomes then, do people then say, ah, oh, you know what, I much prefer that. And that's where the Tiger Woods, Phil Mickelson things, thing comes in is if it goes really well, do you start to say, well, okay, who do we do next? Can we do another one next? And can we start pulling away because now this is a way bigger draw than the current guys? Yeah, but Tiger and Phil can still win on the tour. Maybe. Maybe. I, I, it's not impossible. No, I mean... It's, it's not impossible. They're not so old that they can't. They're not so decrepit or so beyond their prime, but it would have to be a perfect weekend. Unlike the old days when you could play pretty well and they were good enough to win. Well, as uh, a young man you've talked to many times, Mackenzie Hughes told me, he said, it's to put it in perspective, you've got to shoot in the 64 days, four days in a row... And you got to shoot one low sixties to have a crack. That's that's not for the faint of heart. No, no. It is. And as I say, back in the day, Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson were good enough that their regular 
scores were in the mid sixties on all most the days, time on almost every day. So all you got to do is put together a round, uh, one great round, and your three usual rounds, and you're right there. Now they have to put together some magic. What What won't be good is if one of them really kicks the other one's butt all around the golf course. Well, it'll be match play, so you would at least. Uh, yeah, but one could dominate. No, no, absolutely. Absolutely, and then what they would probably have is other entertainment. They'd bring back the guy from last night, the evil Knievel guy. Did you watch that? We'll get to that in a minute. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, Don Robertson in studio, as he is every Monday at this time, and we were just chatting before the break about Phil and Tiger and this $10 million showdown. And he mentioned... When we're talking about throwbacks, evil can evil. And last night on uh, down in Las Vegas, there was some dude from uh, uh, Nitro Circus who was wearing the evil can evil get up and trying to outdo evil can evil. And and he did, of course, he made all the jumps and made it look easy and wasn't even close to crashing, which took all the excitement out of it. Because you know, Don, as I watched part of it, I didn't see all of it. As I watched part of it and saw the old clips of evil can evil and read once upon a time. Lee Montville, who used to be writing for Sports Illustrated, wrote a great book just called Evil, about Evil Knievel. It's a great book if you ever want to read a good uh, sports biography. Um, the charm, or at least the curiosity or the fascination with Evil Knievel was knowing that there was probably about a 5% chance he was ever going to make it. N- this guy, you knew, they're not going to show him on Discovery Channel if he's going to go kill himself. I mean, there was a chance it could go wrong, but... You knew that he's, he does this every day now. He jumps stuff for the Nitro Circus. There was no way this guy wasn't making it. He, he cleared those jumps by 40 feet. I want to go to the, I mean, that's what made, was that not what made everyone watch Evil Can Evil's? He could die. Almost did. Well, many times. A few times. But that's what made it a curiosity, the chance that it could go horribly wrong. The likelihood, maybe. Well, how many people go to a, a stock car race and wait for the crashes? Many. Like, everybody doesn't go to watch success. The technology, I watched the whole thing, or pretty much the whole thing. I had to water some trees, as I was told, and got a few things done. But I basically watched the entire thing and then wandered over our neighbor's deck and watched the big one and, and uh, the last two, actually. And, you know, we were chatting about the technology and the computer imaging and everything else. Like, you know when Evil Knievel was doing it, he's looking at it going, Okay, if I can get this old... Yeah, he's just eyeballing it. This old Indian, which is what he was... No, he was driving a Harley. This guy drove a, an Indian motor, motorbike, I believe. Said, if I can get this thing going about 75 miles an hour, that should do it. I think all the computer imaging and the technology now makes it about as safe as driving to Toronto on a Friday night. Yeah, you could still blow it, but the ramps are designed with computer modeling yeah. to know exactly the height angle and the speed. And, and I'm sure wide open was the exact speed he was supposed to be going, and I'm not taking anything away from it, but you're right. The odds of him something going wrong were very, very small, and they had a they had a uh, an interview, and they and they showed Evil when he did the colossal cla- crash, and he only did it because everybody paid to see him, but he knew that he likely wasn't going to make it. Now, how do you do that? you got to be some kind of inter- interesting guy to... <laughs> That's what I say. Read, read Lee Montville's book because it's, it's well worth the read because it, it, he is, he was a guy who was touched. I mean, he was, he was, 
knowing that he was going to crash, knowing he was going to break every bone in his body and you still go and do it. And at the same time, I mean, they put money in his pocket. He was able to live, I guess, an okay life. And then in the end, sell those little clicky anti-pain thing. Remember those TV commercials he had for the clicky thing? Well, I can tell you one thing that proved to me he was nuts. They owned a hockey team in Butte, Montana. And you got to be a special kind of nut to do that. Well, and I don't know if you remember this, but when the Hamilton Fin Cups were in the Memorial Cup back in 1976, the same week that they were playing in the Memorial Cup in Montreal, Evil Knievel was taking penalty shots against Les Binkley for the Toronto Toros in an intermission thing. I remember, I only found this because when the Memorial Cup was on this year, I was pulling up some old spectators, and there was a story about Evil Knievel taking penalty shots for the Toros as an intermission thing. Oh. But but Evil Knievel was as big a celebrity he was. as there was in the world. He was nuts, but he was a huge star. He was a huge, huge star, and that's the thing that I, as last night I watched, what bits of it that I did watch, and that's what struck me is Evil Knievel was must-see, fascinating, scintillating, amazing to watch, exciting stuff back in the 70s, and I found last night the guy to be, I'm sorry for him because he was doing amazing things, but I found it to be just entirely boring, entirely boring. It was pretty anticlimactic. He just jumped on the bike and hopped over there and went and signed autographs and kissed babies and everything else. And Evil Knievel was what I would call the aspirin of the industry, right? He was the first real daredevil. Now, some of it was a, a, a pant load. I mean, he was going to jump Snake Canyon in a rocket bike and some and pulled the parachute before he left the ramp. He's, so he obviously smartened up a little bit because... Looking at the canyon on the other side and and, and the uh, the scale wall he was going <laughs> to smash into, he's going <laughs> at Mach nine. <laughs> he was just going to be a schmear. Yeah. They say it'll go fast enough. They just don't think it'll go far enough. <laughs> but I, he was. I'm a daredevil. They had during the show yesterday the one part that I saw. They had the guys from uh, Pawn Stars, the TV show on Discovery Channel, there, and they were showing old Evil Knievel memorabilia, and one of the yeah. things was a little Evil Knievel toy that was a, I think it was called the SST Evil Knievel. And it was a little, like a Barbie doll almost on a motorcycle. And you would pump it to build up the air pressure and then press the button and the thing would take off. Now, I had one of these. I got one of these for Christmas. I remember the year I got that. It was the greatest thing ever. The problem was it never balanced properly. So you'd pump it, pump it, pump it, pump it, press the button to let it go and you would just fall over. But it's still, everybody had to have the Evil Knievel toy. He was the coolest thing ever and I and maybe it's just that I'm getting older and presumably a little more mature or something but I, I found it so boring yesterday and maybe it's just that we're used to seeing great stuff now I don't know I, but I, I don't think there's anybody like him like this guy's not like him I mean he might do some pretty cool stuff this guy apparently dove out of an airplane so he's a little cracked too he dives out of an airplane with a pair of shorts and a t-shirt on and another guy dives out behind him, catches catches him, and grabs him and pulls the chute, and they go down. So he's done a few things that are a bit like, really. And now, see, Don, this is where I this is where I start to wonder about all of us, because the fact that Evil Can Evil back in the seventies did risk his life every time, and we found that fascinating, and we find this guy boring because we know he's going to make it. <laughs> I'm not sure what that says about us. <laughs> you know, like he jumped, what this guy jumped yesterday, 16 Greyhound buses, and he cleared it by 30 feet. Yeah, but they were side by side. They weren't lengthwise. 
But if you know you're going to clear it by 30 feet, let's make it interesting. Instead of doing 16, do 20 and let's at least make it close so it looks exciting. But we are also in a time. Well, I was happy you made it. Clearly you're a sadist. No, but (laughs) we're in a time too. Do you think there's any chance that Discovery Channel, if Evil Knievel was alive today, doing Evil Knievel stuff, where I say three out of four jumps that he does are disasters. Is there any chance that Discovery Channel shows that thing live if there is a 75% chance that he's going to turn himself into applesauce? <laughs> no, because uh, Nick Lewenza, when the- Lewenza, yeah, the Lewenza. Yeah. Um, Cross Niagara Falls. So when ABC said they televise it, they'd only do it if he tethered off. Yeah. And he didn't want to do it, but that's the only way they'd put it on TV. So they could, I guess, rather than watch him go for a swim, they wanted to watch him swing. I mean, I... Yeah, I still haven't figured out how they were going to get him off of there. You can't fly a helicopter around wires. I don't know what they were, what he was supposed to do when he got there. Were they just going to cut one side of it and let him, like, zip down or well, something? Well, he was, he was probably smart enough to know, look at, I'm better off landing in the water. <laughs> Hanging there upside down Swinging around feet. on this thing. But, anyway. But, but who's replaced Evil Knievel? Nobody. Nobody. The, I mean, the last... Uh, I can tell you that... Super Dave Osborne. <laughs> okay. Maybe. I was going to say I hadn't thought of him, so there's three. <laughs> there are three stuntmen in the world that I can name. Evil Knievel, and now that you've said it, Super Dave Osborne, who wasn't really a stuntman, but he was uh, hilarious. Funny. Uh, and the third one, and I only know this because it happened in Toronto, was the guy named Dar Robinson, who was the guy who dove off the CN Tower one time for a movie. And I only remember that. I don't remember how I remember his name, but he, it was the CN Tower thing. But there's Evil Knievel was a guy who was otherwise completely not famous for any good reason, but for the fact that he was willing to... But in the grand scheme of things, a guy... <laughs> this is going to sound a little nuts, but I guess that's why I'm here. Jumping off the CN Tower once doesn't put you in Evil Knievel's league. No, no. And most people would not remember that name. For some reason, it's stuck in my head. But Evil Knievel would be the one guy that people would remember. Is the one guy that people would yep. know his name because of what he did. I well, and you know his son Robbie. Yeah, he did it for a long time. Did the successful and jump. I forgot about Robbie. Yeah, right. He did that jump successfully, and he was nowhere near that broadcast. And and here's the thing, maybe people listening right now who watched remember the guy's name from last night. I don't. I don't. So yeah. you can go and do all these things. Starts with a P, and it's an odd name. Okay, so you can you can do all this stuff, and you can do all these jumps really well, and and and. You know, what, what difference does it make? Let me tell you this. There's a lot more people today that that watched about it or read about it that are talking about Evil Knievel than the guy that did it successfully. 100%. And there's one other thing. How many perfect games in baseball do you remember? Altogether? None. The one game that I think most people, now maybe because it's more recent, the one perfect game that I think most people will remember is the Detroit Tigers guy where the umpire screwed it up at the yep. end and called. It's the it's the things that can go wrong in those moments that we remember. I like I, I evil you if you had somehow been able to have evil can evil at ninety. I don't know how old he is. He's, he would have been about that age, eighty five or ninety. Now. It, you're only eighty now. Yeah. Oh, okay. So at evil, I think so. If if he had still been alive. And you had trotted Evil Knievel out to that show yesterday and just sat him on the ramp. He would have been five million times the celebrity that yeah. the guy who actually did it was. I, I said, it, it's kind of sad to me. 
in a weird way because maybe it's just part of our childhood, but I remember Evil Knievel and all that stuff very fondly and it was very exciting and all the rest. This, that is, that's gone. This guy proved yesterday that, like, there's really nothing you can do that will fascinate us or intrigue us. We'll watch, sort of, but we're not going to go, wow! We're going to watch and go, all right. Well, he what, is another 45 minutes till the next jump? He was, uh, like, three of the top five Wide World of Sports disasters. Remember like, when Wide World of Sto- oh, yeah. Sports would come on? And they had that ski jumper go off and hit that pole, and the guy died. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. He actually... Well, see, I said that, and then I had a guy... Uh, about a year ago, said, how did they do that? The guy died. And I said, well, I didn't think he did. So I believe nope. that guy. I believe you because you're a journalist. Well, no, the, the, I know uh, Vinko Bogatai was the guy's name. And Every week they showed that guy wiping out. And when they had the Wide World of Sports 25th anniversary banquet that was televised and they did it, and everybody, you got to read the story about this, everybody showed up for this thing in the World of Sports. Muhammad Ali was there and all these people. Everybody was going to Vinko Bokutai asking for his autograph. He was the biggest star. And he had, he lived in the Czech Republic or somewhere, or Czechoslovakia. He had no idea. Because this is before satellites. This is before cable. He had no idea. And they bring him over. ABC brings him over for this banquet. He has no idea. And he is the biggest star. And why is that? Because of that crash. If he had made that jump, we would have never heard about him. Ever. We would have never known about this guy. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. In studio with Don Robertson, as we do every Monday, chatting a few, chatting about a few things in sports. And Don, uh, the Ottawa Senators right now are a complete tire fire. They are the attendance is down. The fans want Eugene Melnick to sell the team and get out of Dodge. They don't like him. He they're having to sell off their best players. They finished almost last this year. On and on and on. It's a, it's just a mess. Back in 1992, when they got going, when they were given a franchise by the NHL at a time when most people thought it was going to be Hamilton that won, and Ottawa's owners at the time made up some stuff about their money and everything else, and they were awarded the franchise. So did Tampa Bay. So did Tampa Bay, absolutely. Phil Esposito has said that repeatedly. One of the the three had the money. Had Hamilton got the Ottawa franchise, we'll leave Tampa Bay. They're doing okay. They're doing fine for themselves. By the way, if you're calling in with the quiz answer, hang in because the lines are ringing. So Lisa will get to you as fast as she can. If that franchise had not come to Ottawa, but had come to Hamilton, would things be any better today than where they are now in Ottawa? Not trying to be a homer, but absolutely. I mean... A lot of the problems with Ottawa, I mean, there, there's a number of them. Um, first of all, ownership that really wasn't very well funded. An ownership group that decided to build an arena as far away from downtown as they could because they had a bunch of investment lands out in Canada. Wanted to redevelop it, turn it into, I guess, a community. Um, so first of all, um, Ron Joyce was well funded could have afforded the franchise. The building was downtown. Um, so you got your downtown building. You've got an owner that is wildly successful because he's smart and he lets people do their job. So he doesn't interfering, interfere with, like, Firestone made his buddy Randy Sexton the GM who promptly drafted a guy that was dead. So... Not an auspicious start. 
No. So, you know, the success, first of all, of being in southern Ontario, of being in a fairly new building in downtown Hamilton, and an owner that was very well healed and very smart, we would have certainly seen far more success in Ottawa, and I assuredly would not be in the same state as the Ottawa Senators are today. I'm not... I'm not as confident as you are, although I think that if they had survived, if a Hamilton team had been, if we'd been given a team in 92 and had survived, I think today we would be fine. But there was not always a salary cap and there was a very wealthy team down the road. I'm not convinced that we would have got to this point. I'm worried that 10 years into it or 12 years into it, that Hamilton would have been in real, real financial peril. If they had been able to overcome that obstacle and we'd gotten to 2018, things might be okay. Now there's a salary cap and you would have had hopefully a deep-pocketed owner still, but uh, I, I'm, I, I'm not as confident that that would have happened. I'm not as confident because there were some times there when the Canadian dollar was brutal. And, and the NHL subsidized it. Edmonton, Calgary went through it. Yeah, but they Ottawa were, went through but it. But they were teetering. They Ottawa te- went through yeah, it. They, absolutely. And they were teetering and they needed a lot of help. And that's that's my point. With the dollar being better, with the teams now, with TV money and with with the salary cap that helps them out and all this other stuff, I, I think Hamilton today, if there was a franchise, would be okay. I think Hamilton would have been far light years ahead of Ottawa because I don't think they would have had the attendance problems. There are so many corporations that wanted that wanted to and still want to invest their, their dollars in the National Hockey League and have one option. And there is so much room for a second Toronto team and there's so much desire. Now, would the second team be able to get 450 bucks for a platinum ticket? Of course not. Would they be happy getting 250 Of course they would. I mean, you wouldn't get as rich, but the only thing the salary cap in my thought process has done to the Toronto Maple Leafs has made them filthy rich. Well, there's one. Like how do you get Rogers and Beller, who are the most fierce competitors in the country, to sit in the same boardroom? It's, it's the money they make. There's one other thing, and, the, and it's not exactly answering my own question because I said if they had got, if Hamilton had a franchise in 1992 when Ottawa got their team. So under, I understand that I'm now changing the question a little bit. But the closest we came was with Jim Balsillie a number of years ago. And that becomes a real interesting one because if Jim Balsillie had actually won the rights to get that franchise, this was when BlackBerry was at its apex. BlackBerry has gone through some difficult times and he's no longer with BlackBerry now. It'd be very interesting to see what would have happened if Hamilton had got a team, if he was the deep-pocketed owner that shortly after getting the team was no longer all that deep-pocketed in the grand scheme of things where we'd be right now, whether he would have had to sell or whether we'd be playing the Eugene Melnick game where we were going to be the poorest end of the thing and not spending to the cap and trying just to muddle along and make a few bucks without going bankrupt. That would have been a real interesting one. I think think he'd been making more money in hockey than he would have been selling blackberries. Uh, Possibly. Possibly. I mean, look, I I don't think that... Hockey is not a losing money proposition unless the cost to get the team and fix the arena and build the thing and everything else puts is such a huge capital investment that you can never recoup your money. That's the point. Well, that's it? where it is now for Hamilton. Right. You could never, it would cost you almost $2 billion it's over if you were going to get, if you were, by the time you have a new rink and you do all the other stuff, it's probably going to be a well over a billion to buy the franchise. 
it's another 400, 500 million to get the new arena or to put an arena in place. You've got to get farm teams. You've got to buy staff. You've got to pay 100 million almost a year in salary. I mean, it's an expensive, expensive proposition. That's 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 the problem with Balsillie is if you had to have put such a huge capital nut down there to buy it, even though you may be making profit with the interest and everything else you had to pay to cover all this, would he have been able to afford to continue on? Well, I don't know. Does he does he pay cash for it? Well, who knows? His, the only shot Hamilton had. In, in in the Pittsburgh, Nashville, Phoenix scenario was probably Pittsburgh. Wouldn't that have been odd to see the Pittsburgh Penguins here? Can you imagine a National Hockey League without a Pittsburgh Penguin team? That was the shot. Well who was the who were who were in the finals last not this season we just finished, but the season Nashville. before? Nashville versus Pittsburgh. Penguins won. The two teams that could have been in Hamilton were playing for the Stanley Cup. We would have won one way or the other. (laughs) The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.